we come to you now, we thank you for the time uh, that we get uh, each week to, to stop down in the middle of the week to consider your word and to grow in our understanding of what it is and to, to hopefully be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Um, Lord, I'm really thankful uh, for these times. I always love getting back into the swing of things in, in the fall and in the spring. And um, I just pray that it'd be a real blessing, um, particularly tonight, Lord, as we consider the story of Daniel and we consider... Um, uh, just how great of a God you've always been and how great of a God you promised to always be. I pray that that would affect us as worshipers, that, as, as your children, that we would look to you as, as father and as king um, and as judge and just marvel at how you have given us access to you in Christ that guarantees things for us in the future. Uh, we are a, a blessed bunch um, here today. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is Daniel part two. We started uh, the first part of Daniel last week, and um, Mark Dever, uh, the, he's the guy who wrote the Old Testament survey that we're using to go through the Old Testament right now. Um, he, that's the main resource that we're utilizing outside of Scripture. And he, he describes the story of Daniel as one of a survivor in the midst of change. A survivor in the midst of change. So for some of you, that may sound like it may not apply, but hopefully for some of you, um, it, it does apply, where you see that we're a people right now who are in the midst of significant change. We live in a country that's changing a lot, that exists within a world that's changing a lot, and to survive in a faithful way is a big deal. And so my hope for us as we study uh, Daniel is that we would see um, some particularities about what, what made him a survivor, what caused him to, to survive well and to, to survive faithfully. Um, our outline is three parts, and we, and we got through the first one last week, and we'll get through the last two this week, and it's the changing kings of Babylon, the unchanging God, who is king of kings, and then the third thing is Daniel the survivor. So um, if you weren't here last week, or if you were, let's go ahead and recap a little on what we considered last week in, in, in the story of Daniel, and the story of Daniel is set against the backdrop of the splendor of Babylonian Renaissance in the 6th century B.C., so the story of Daniel, the backdrop is this just splendor of this Babylonian dynasty, this kingdom, this renaissance in 6th century BC under Nebuchadnezzar, um, the Babylonian empire reached its largest size that it would ever attain. So Nebuchadnezzar was, was leading for the most part. Um, there were other leaders that we'll talk about tonight, um, but he, he led Babylon, the Babylonian empire to reach its largest size that it would ever attain. So from last week's study... What were some of the details about the splendor of Babylon that we discussed? What were some things that made up that large... Anyone remember how big the land was? The, the plot, the site? How many acres? 2,000, boom. It was 40 or 2,000. You had a 50-50 shot. Um, and what, what, what made up some of, the, some of that big... Renaissance kingdom. What, what did the buildings look like? They were big, obviously, but what do we know about the temples? How many temples were there? A lot? Okay, fantastic. We're getting specific tonight. 40, 2,000, a lot. All right. Um, what, was, what were some of the heights of some of the, the magnificent buildings that were built? Do you remember how high some of them reached? 300 feet. Does anyone remember the top plate of this building is? Yeah, there we go. Why do y'all remember that? Y'all don't remember the other. That's so weird. 
So, um, the, to say the least, they had temples. They had, I think it was um, over 50 temples. Um, they had a palace that was magnificent. Um, what was, remember one of the seven wonders that they had? The hanging gardens. The Babylonian hanging gardens. And um, it's weird, if you pull that up on Google, it comes up and it's, it, it looks like a place you can visit, but it's in Iraq. It's like, it's weird. It's almost like you could click on it and be like, oh, let's go see the Babylonian hanging gardens. Well, they're not, they're not there right now. It's Iraq and it's not a great place to go visit. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that was part of it. And, and it was just, when, when Nebuchadnezzar said, look at this that I've built, he wasn't kidding. He built a significant kingdom. I mean, the palaces were huge. The, the architecture was massively impressive. Um, he did just a ton. And, and when he gloated, he wasn't just blowing hot air. He, he got some things done with Babylon, and it was huge. Um, what would they do when they conquered another nation like Israel? Yep, they would take the smart and good-looking youth, and they would bring them in, and they would indoctrinate them. And what else would they do when they would um, conquer another nation? You remember what they did with the objects of worship? Yeah. Yeah, we, we established that um, our Christian church has no crosses in here, but we do have the creepy wooden figures that are springing up from the, their graves or whatever that is. Um, and we established that what they would do, though, if we had, if we had crosses, they would like, get those, and they would take them into their own temples, and they would put them in front of their own gods. And what they're doing in, in that is to say that if our gods weren't superior to you, we would not have been able to overthrow you. But because we overthrew you, that must mean that our gods are superior to your gods. So we will take the objects of your worship and mock you and subject them to our gods and put them before our gods as a, as a way to say we are stronger and our gods are better. And, and this was common, and this is something that they did anytime they conquered a nation, and they conquered a lot of nations during the rise of the Babylonian Empire. So how did Daniel end up in a place of influence? We already kind of mentioned it, but how, how did he end up in a place of influence that's worth studying? Yeah? He was able to interpret the dream. How did he even get to the point where he was given the opportunity to interpret the dream? Yeah, he was among the pretty smart people. Yeah, so we know Daniel must have been good-looking. He must have been smart. He must have been educated, and he must have been articulate, and he must have been able to come in there and, and impress them. Um, he, he had something about him that was, that was um, impressive, and so he ended up in a place of influence in the king's court as those who were trying to be indoctrinated. But that's the problem with trying to indoctrinate um, someone who follows the king of kings is that he, he, he was pretty, pretty well-believed what he believed. Romans 14 tells us that we're supposed to be fully convinced as to what we believe, not to be wishy-washy, tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but to be fully convinced as to what we believe. And that's what we're going to see tonight as we study Daniel. He was there to be indoctrinated because he was pretty and smart, but he was fully convinced as to what he believed. So he ended up in this place of influence. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he interpreted? What was the nature and the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The p different parts of the statue representing different parts of the empire. 
And what happened to that there statue there? What happened? It was destroyed by what? It was... Does anyone remember? It was broken into pieces by what? Let's just say God. That was the point. That, that was the nature of the dream. God broke all the other kingdoms down in this dream. And so that, that's kind of set the pace, and, and Daniel was able to tell that to the king, and we're going to revisit that a little bit tonight. But what we learned last week were these two considerations that do not be overwhelmed with the power and influence of your enemies, and do not be overwhelmed with the power and influence of yourself. Anyone who has ever used the power to serve themselves falls inevitably. There's no one who has ever walked this earth or used their power to serve themselves that, that didn't do anything but serve the end of dying and proving that you could not perpetuate that power. But for those who use power to, to continue the kingdom of God, guess what? The kingdom of God is still moving forward, and, and as part of that, you have an eternal inheritance. And so we learned last week not to be too overwhelmed with the power of those who are leaders, those who are leaders of other countries, the leaders of our own countries. We're not to be too overwhelmed by their power, and what we're going to see tonight is that if you are overwhelmed, it's going to make you stumble, and if, if, you, if you remain sober, you, you will not stumble in particular settings. So this week, what we're going to look at is we looked at the changing kings last week, um, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, um, uh, uh, Cyrus the Great, and um, who was the other one? Anyone remember the other one's name? Darius. Yeah, Darius, the Mede. Um, and so uh, this week we're going to see who stands in stark contrast to those kings. And you probably already know the answer, but just turn with me to Daniel 2.20. Daniel 2.20. This is after God has revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel, which we, which we studied last week. And it, within that, we see Daniel have a sort of a time of worship where he reveals some things about one who stands in stark contrast to these changing kings. And he says in 2.20, it says, Daniel answered and said, it says, Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings, and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This is the difference between a lowercase k king and the king of kings. Look again over at 244. He says after this, he goes and he interprets the dream, and he tells, remember the last week this was sort of the throwdown with Nebuchadnezzar, and he says in 244, and in the days of those kings, that God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God is made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. That's the point where Daniel takes the microphone, he turns it sideways, and he just drops it on the ground. Just kind of like, what? What are you going to say to that? It's sure. 
Like, I'm not asking you if you like my interpretation. This is sure. This is certain. And he has this boldness that's from the Lord. So in those verses, what we find is this. I started off today explaining that the story of Daniel is set against the backdrop of the splendor of the Babylonian Renaissance. What this reveals is that the story of Daniel is set against... So I want you to consider three layers. Here's the story of Daniel... Behind it is this bigger thing of the, the, the splendor of the renaissance of Babylon. And then behind that, it is set against the backdrop of the even greater splendor of the unending kingdom of God. That's how we view the story of Daniel. The story of Daniel is set on the backdrop of the splendor of Babylon, which in reality, Babylon didn't know, is set on the backdrop of the splendor of an eternal kingdom of an eternal God. So there's this greater reality behind Babylon that we can see as we're studying Daniel. We can see it clearly, the splendor of the unending kingdom of God. And I want you to look at the effect that it has on the Babylonian king. Look at 246. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. How has this seemed to change Nebuchadnezzar? What would you say has changed with him? Yeah, there looks to be belief, there looks to be trust. What, what is it a sign of when someone falls on their face? Yeah, it humbled him. Submission. It's interesting, because he's got a, a treasury full of articles of worship from other countries, other nations that they have dominated, that are sort of bowing down before all of the articles of the worship of his gods. But here in a moment, it all goes to nothing, really. It all proves to be futile and silly when he himself, the greatest king that was walking the earth at the time, bows down after Daniel's interpretation and pays homage to God. We see humility here. It changes him. Daniel's movement changed him. So now, if only the, the story of Daniel stopped there, it would be great. There's so many points where I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, man, why can't it just stop right there? Like, it was bad, and then it was good, and then everyone loved Jesus, and we want to stop right there. It doesn't even come close to stopping there. Look at chapter 3. It says, But Daniel remained at the king's court, and then King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's a real carnival here. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages. Like, they've dominated a lot of people. There's a lot of nations that they're addressing within their own nation. Nations and languages that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, 
I think it's funny that bagpipes are in that list, right? And every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. So what do they have to do as soon as they hear any of those instruments? Fall down and do what? Worship the golden image that he set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Once again, a strong world leader leading with fear, trying to put fear in the hearts of those that are subject to him, saying, do what I say or you're going to die. So this is do what I say or you'll get thrown into the fiery furnace. He's, this is a king, unlike our king, who says, I want you to be fearful. I want you to be anxious. And so this is the way he, he does it. He says, whoever doesn't do what I ask will immediately, I'm not going to dawdle, we're not going to drag our feet, be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigger, and the harp, the bagpipe, harp and the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Imagine what this would look like. Imagine how many people were in this Babylonian kingdom, how many people had been dominated by Nebuchadnezzar. And imagine what it would look like here in this moment where he makes this big golden statue and you hear the music and every face bows down to this golden statue. Just previously, he had talked about how great the God of Daniel was and how different he was because of how Daniel um, had, had shown him something about the greatness of God. And what I want us to see here is is sometimes the forward movement of the gospel can seem really futile and even ridiculous. I mean, there was just this bright moment where he humbled himself before God, where Daniel's faithfulness had had an effect on someone in a, in a position of power. And it's just the next few verses where that same guy builds a big golden idol and causes everybody to stumble by bowing down to the golden idol. So sometimes the forward movement of the gospel can seem futile and ridiculous. But we, what we have to remember is it's always moving forward. In your endeavor, as a member of God's kingdom, who is all about the forward movement of the gospel and the kingdom of God, even when it seems futile and ridiculous like this, where it's like we just took one step forward and about 50 steps backwards, you have to know that even when it seems futile and ridiculous, the kingdom of God is still moving forward. That's an encouragement we see here. When it seems like, man, all the odds are set against me, the kingdom of God is still moving forward. When it seems like someone who you thought you reached with, with faith when that person becomes unreasonable and unfaithful and causes others to stumble, the kingdom of God is still moving forward. And so there's a good reminder here as we're watching this horrible thing play out where everybody's bowing down to this golden idol because of a, a, a power-hungry king who's, who is, in fact, very powerful. Um, so we'll come back to this story in a few minutes. But what I want us to see is throughout the rest of the book, God continues to reiterate and demonstrate that all kings will pass. And there's one tr- the one true God is eternal. That's the point here that we see. We see that all these changing kings, those who come and go, Daniel lives through the life of four of them. He lives through the, the deportation. He even lives through Persia conquering Babylon later on. And so he sees all these things. And so what we learn from him is, one, these kings are always changing. No matter how strong their kingdom is, it will inevitably fail if it's not about the Lord. And then, and then here we come now, seeing that there is an unchanging God who is above all of it, an unchanging God who is powerful, an unchanging God who will never be dominated. So what I want us to see here is that Daniel knew his God to be different. Daniel knew his God to be unique, and that affected the way that Daniel lived. It should be the case for us. 
it, it would be easy for us to just be reactive in our movement, right? You go watch the news, you see things that are going on globally, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's bad things happening, there's evil people in power. And Christians should always, always, their actions, their movement, their heart, their mind should be affected by what they know about their God, what we know about our God that is unique, and what we know about our God that is, that is unlike any other leader or king that ever rose to power on, on earth, on the earth that our God created. That helps us to be steadfast. And so here, I want to look at Daniel. I want to kind of investigate how did that affect Daniel? Because clearly, he was, a, he was a stud, and we're going to look at some details here, he and his friends. But how did the realities that he knew about God affect how he's moving? So first, Daniel understands that he is where he is because God has him there for a purpose. Has anyone ever been in a situation where you're like, this stinks, I don't want to be here? Probably, probably everyone in the room. I mean, double hand up there, there, there we go. So there, there, that's not an abnormal thing for us to be like, man, I don't like where I'm at. I think this situation stinks. What I want most is to be out of this sorry situation. And with Daniel, I mean, he is good-looking, and he's smart, and he, he's able to have influence on people that are really powerful. He has God on his side, but his circumstance stinks. He's in captivity. He's in someone else's nation, the kind of person who causes everyone else to bow down to a golden statue. It's totally pagan, totally secular. And here he is, a man of God, but he knew he was there for a purpose. And so the purpose for Daniel is that Daniel's in exile, and he's there to encourage boldness and obedience in his fellow exiles when they're tempted to compromise. We're going to look at how many times Daniel and his fellow exiles are tempted to compromise. Um, you, you all may have heard it said that those who, like, you're talking about survivors, a survivor is a person who knows when to compromise. A survivor is a person who knows how to compromise. And I think once we look at this tonight, we'll see that maybe we, we should be careful in how we view compromise and where we should never compromise. So we've seen in chapter 1, what, what was the, remember chapter 1, we, we looked at it last week. They're brought before the court, and what happens right after they, they give them some new names and all that? What, what do they give them in chapter 1? Y'all remember? What? A new diet. And what's wrong with a new diet for them? They weren't allowed to eat that stuff. Why? Because they were Jews, which meant they couldn't eat food that was what to what? Yeah, was it kosher? There you go. Um, they, they could not eat the food. They would not eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. And so that was the very first thing. They're stepping out, and it's like, Someone could look at them. I just, as we go through the story tonight, think about how you would counsel Daniel. Would you say, hey man, you know those idols aren't real, just shut up and eat the food. Hey man, you're not really worshiping the golden image in your heart, just, you know, get your face on the ground. Maybe that'll let you have more opportunity later. And there's opportunities for compromise along the way, but from the get-go, there's a refusal toward moral compromise. He says, no, it's, I'm not going to do this, and, and I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to trust God. And so here in chapter 1, there's a refusal to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols by Daniel and by his three friends. Does anyone remember the name of the three friends? Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's exactly right. And um, I've got a musical number from a musical I was in when I was a kid, and it was uh, Shadrach, who has a name like that, Meshach. I'm not going to go into it, but it was beautiful. I've got a recording I'll share with you all later. It was a, it was a big, big moment for me. 
Um, but, but yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were his three friends, and they all refused. And, the, and what happened was the Lord was with them. They didn't compromise, and the Lord actually blessed them in that. And they had to trust the Lord through that, because in that setting, what happens when you defy the king in the courts? It's disrespect. And so what are the possibilities? Yeah, they could get angry. You could either, you could either um, just be embarrassed and humiliated in front of everybody, or you could be killed, beheaded, sawn in half, you name it. I mean, it could go really bad for them. So um, I want to return to that story in chapter 3 that we started earlier about bowing down to that golden idol. And I want you to look at verses 12 through 15. Verse 12 says this in chapter, what chapter was that? 3. The, uh, the, the, the kiss-ups have returned to the king. I was trying to figure out a good name for them. The kiss-ups returned to the king, and, and they're, they're telling on those who, who weren't doing what the king said. And so they, they go up, and they do their kiss-up. They declare to the king, O king, you live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn of the pipe, all that. And then you get to verse 12. It says, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And he goes on to say, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, this was a guy who was very powerful, and he was also a bit of a, a rager. He, he, he had a temper. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, boys, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is the moment where the tumbleweed, there's another moment like that. He throws down on them. I mean, he doesn't even punish them. He brings them before to make an example of them. All right, boys, we're going to play the music, and I'm going to give you one more chance. And let's see if you're, who, who's God's going to deliver you from my hands? I mean, he is a power-hungry and powerful king. And so that, that's what just happened. He, he throws down on them. He says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to play the music one more time, and we're going to see what you, you boys are going to do. <laughs> and look at how they respond. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. I, I think it was more like, O Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Imagine the President of the United States just asked you a pointed question. <laughs> oh, President, I have no need to answer you on this matter. I mean, this is a, those are big words in a big setting in front of a big old king. I don't have a need to answer you in this matter. You, you're going to question me? Guess what? My response is, I don't got to answer your question in this matter. That, that's what they're saying to the most powerful person that they know. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You want to talk about backbone. These dudes were standing tall here. What do Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, reveal that they know about God? What do they know about God? What do they reveal that they know about God from, from what they just said there? It's a few things I don't want us to miss. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing is, let us make it clear, our God is able to deliver us from, from whatever we may face. They want the most powerful person they've ever encountered outside of God to know that their God will deliver them from whatever that person has, that he's able to. That's the first thing. God is able to deliver you from anything. That's the first thing that they know. And then the second thing is what? What do they know that he will do for sure? One way or another, he will deliver us out of your hand. You think your hand's the biggest hand. Guess what? It ain't. One way or another, he will deliver. So our God is able to, to deliver us out of anything, and, I, and he will deliver us out of your hand. And then he says, but if not, appealing to what the king's thinking, the king's thinking, I, I will burn you alive. Delivered what? I'll I got a furnace. I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And so they appeal to that and say, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if we don't live through this, I'll be danged if I'm going to bow down to your God. I mean, these guys are awesome. I, could, I only hope I could have so much faith in such a terrifying moment as to look a king in the face and say, my God makes me not scared of you. My God makes me not fearful of what you might do to me. My God makes me far bold enough to stand here and say, you do what you need to do, and we'll see what happens. Worst case scenario, I'm ushered into eternity. And my God delivers me through, through the death, even. This, this is a big, big moment here. So um, and what, it leads them to stand up for what they believe. I, that's what I want us to see. It causes them not to bow down. What they know about God causes them not to bow down. It causes them to be bold, which we defined last week as being clear in the face of fear. It causes them to not just, um, not even just do the right thing, but also say the right thing and to say it to the king. And it causes them to give words to what, they're, what they know their God is able to do. And, and, and they say, we'll, we'll, we'll bet our life on it. It causes them to be very bold. Um, these are such wonderful verses to consider when you're tempted to compromise. Deborah has a note. He says, these three young men knew that the almighty pagan king had nothing that they finally needed. They were looking at the king, the pagan king, and saying, you don't have anything to offer me, man. I serve such a big God, you don't have anything to offer me. What you, what you think you have to offer me is nothing in comparison. And so a question I want us to consider is, what are some ways that Christians are regularly tempted to compromise in our culture? What are some ways that we're tempted to compromise? Acceptance? Yeah. Yeah. Which... That's a really loaded word you just threw out there. I mean, seriously, we, we could spend all night on that. Acceptance. Of what? Yeah. 
acceptance of things that God says are not godly. So um, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of examples in our culture, um, lots of things that um, we may be tempted to compromise on. Can y'all think of any, any, any specifics? Yeah, yeah. Consider for a moment that one of the things that the wicked nations in the Bible are characterized by is that they would enjoy the sin of other people. It was it was entertainment to them. That you not only do what they do, but you give approval to what they do. And so wicked nations throughout the Bible are defined by enjoying the sin that they see in other people. That's a lot of our entertainment. I'm going to watch this movie, I'm going to watch this show, like you just said, and I'm going to think about what the content is, it's just popular. Well, am I getting my enjoyment from watching other people sin terribly? It's not getting cleaner, guys. I cannot channel surf with my kids in the room. When we were little, we had channel 4, channel 5, channel 8, channel 11, channel 13, and then there were some weird channels with church people in the 20s. (laughs) And they weren't much more trustworthy than the others. And so that was all we had, and you kind of had a one in five shot that, you know, you find something reasonable. Man, I'm not talking about, like, pay cable movie channels. I'm talking about, like, common everyday stuff. And there's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of horrible immorality. There's a lot of misrepresentation of God. And we not only have to be careful as adults on what we're viewing as appropriate for our entertainment, but we got to be careful for our children, too. I mean, Disney just recently introduced their same-sex, first same-sex couple. Don't let your kids watch that. It's not okay. It's not, it's not just middle ground. It's, it's indoctrinating them the way that they wanted to indoctrinate the, 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 the wisest among those who they would capture. So we have to be very careful about that. I think we're, we're, we're regularly tempted to compromise in our culture, but what we have to say, we have to look at things like that, whether it's an issue of what marriage is, an issue of when life begins, an issue of um, what freedom even is, an issue of, of um, how we should um, view immigration, of an issue of how we respond to children in need. I mean, y- you name it. Um, are we able to look at our culture in the face and say, you have nothing that I finally need. You do, what you have to offer me is nothing that I finally need. Are we so firm in God's provision that we, that we could do that? Daniel survived the deportation to Babylon, the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Persian. He's a survivor. Turn to Daniel 6. This is the last big story that Daniel has. Remember, the first six chapters are amazing uh, stories in the last six chapters are, are lots of um, dreams about and visions of the future. And another way to, con- to look at that is that these first six chapters are examples of the provision that they will have eternally, like deliverance with the food stuff, deliverance from the fiery furnace, deliverance um, from what we're about to see with the lions, Daniel and the lion's den. These are examples of what the second half of the book shows is this eternal deliverance. So we have these things that we experience in our lives that are temporary and they're, they're, they're now, but they point us to something more, more firm and eternal. And so here in Daniel 6, um, we're going to start off and we're going to read 1, one through 5 and consider Daniel the survivor. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the, kingdoms 100, the kingdom 120 satraps, 
to, uh, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. So it's normal, standard kingdom stuff where it's, I'm going to put people in charge so that I don't lose anything, and then if I need to blame someone, i got someone to blame. That's what happens there. And then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials, satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and Daniel's like getting to be an old man at this point. We're, we're not talking about a, a dapper young guy anymore. He's, he's getting old at this point. Um, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Did you hear that? Daniel, the captive Israelite, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no fault for complaint or any other fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found. And this is where it's kind of hard to relate to Daniel. He's just so stinking awesome. Even his enemies are like, man, I got nothing on this guy. He's really good. In politics, you can almost always dig up dirt on anybody. Not Daniel, apparently. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This is how it works. This is how it still works. Um, in 1 through 5, what does this reveal about faithful movement and the reaction it may draw from others? What just happened there? He's being faithful, and what reaction did it draw? They did notice. Sometimes that's what we're fearful of. I don't want to be faithful because someone might notice. It might change the way they look at me. What, what happened with him? What, what reaction did it cause once they noticed? Jealousy. And then what did jealousy quickly lead to? Rage. Down with Daniel. We got to find a way to get rid of this guy. They learned that the king so esteemed him that he was going to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. And they said, There's got, we got to get rid of this guy. We get, we, he's so good. This guy's so good. He's so smart. He's so wise. He just moved. We can't even challenge him unless we find something in the connection with the law of his God, who we know he's faithful to. And look at verses 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. Suck-ups. All the high officials of the kingdom and the, pre the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. I want you to understand what just happened here. They're not doing it. He's not doing anything wrong. So what we got to do is make up a new law so that when it goes into effect, then he's doing something wrong. You see that? Would you feel ripped off a little bit if you're moving along and just find out? It's almost like when they change the speed limit somewhere and you're not aware of it. And you get pulled over and it's like, what, what, why'd you pull me over? You were speeding. No, I wasn't. I was doing 50. Well, it's only 40 right here on this road right here that should be 50. <laughs> and so you, you can see like, oh man, they changed the law on me. And as soon as they changed it, I was, I was in, I, I was breaking the law and I didn't realize it. That's what they're doing. With, I'm, I'm not speaking from personal experience. That's what they're doing here. 
what they're doing is saying, he's not doing anything wrong, so let's change the law. Let's use the law so that as soon as we get it signed in, then he'll be doing something wrong. Guys, our, our country is, we're so good at this. <laughs> we're so good at, this is not new. This is, this, is, this is the way the world works when they do not fear the Lord. I want you all to know that this is going on in almost every country on earth right now, making new laws that Christians are violating once the law goes into effect. Did you all know that um, in Kazakhstan, they're working really hard right now to pass a new law which says that any religious gathering, if you're gathering in a building, which that's what there's a lot of over there, big buildings, um, they don't have like a whole bunch of church buildings like this for Christians. Um, if you're gathering in a building as, and it's a religious gathering, in order to do that, you have to have 90% approval from the tenants. That's a new law that's about to go into effect. Not, 90% approval. Okay, well, how do you think that's going to work? There's no way they're going to get 90% approval. And then they say, and, and if you do have a building and it's within X amount of you know, um, distance to a government building, you can't, you can't meet there either. They're making laws that immediately make the Christians in violation of the law as soon as the law goes into effect. Now, I've read this story before. They're going to be dispersed, and upon a dispersion, usually the message goes with them. So I, I know who's on the winning team there um, and how that goes and how that's going to pan out, and it'll be good for them. It'll be hard, but it'll be good ultimately. But I want you to know that this is how, this is how it works in our country. This is how it works in every other country. It is not abnormal to find someone who does not like what you say about the, your God who created this place anyway. And it is not abnormal for them to not like that and to say, let's put a law in place that makes those Christian people in violation of the law as soon as it goes into effect. It's not abnormal. Not abnormal. I'll stop there because I'm getting into the crazy person sound. Look at verses 10 through 28. Verse 10 through 28. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks for his God as he had done previously. What Daniel knew about his God caused Daniel to not change the way he was living because of a new law. He said, I hear the new law and I'm fully convinced as to what I believe and I will go and continue as I have been moving already. I love it. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and a plea before his God. And then they came near. Their plan, they're so, they feel so good about their plan. They're so patting themselves on the back. Ooh, look, he's praying, he's praying. Oh, king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Question mark. The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. He's very bold. Then they sucker him in. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. That new law has got him in violation, O king, or the injunction that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. This Daniel's such an evil lawbreaker, he breaks our law three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He, he was bothered by this because, remember, he liked Daniel. He was going to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He was trying to figure out a way to do it. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. This king is looking weaker and weaker by the minute. Then the king commanded... 
And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and no sleep and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? What an amazing moment. The king of Babylon is at a lion's den, making a sort of appeal (laughs) of one who was in captivity, and he actually thinks that maybe God did. He thinks, man, I've seen what your God's done. Are you still there? He's like, he actually, there's anticipation here. Are you still there? Has your God been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted God. This is where the children's story ends, but I want to continue for another verse, please. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den... The lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Just in case you thought the lions weren't hungry and it was just like a coincidence that Daniel didn't get eaten, before these jokers hit the ground, all their bones were broken by the mouths of these lions who absolutely obliterated them. What's revealed about God in these verses and did it affect Daniel's movement? What's revealed about God here? What do you learn about God from that story? He's very powerful. He's faithful. He can be trusted. He's in control of the king and the kingdom. Did um, Daniel's faith affect anybody, anybody else? You're dang right. It did. It affected the king of the pagan nation. He's saying, oh my goodness, look how good your God is. It wouldn't continue. Inevitably, the pagan nation would return to its pagan ways, and the pagan king would most oftentimes return to his pagan ways. But there's a moment there where the faith has an effect, and it affects us even still today as we're members of a kingdom who we are sure is moving forward. Dever has a note, a note here in his notes. He says, friend, how he does. I wish y'all could see him do that live because he does that every time he speaks live. Um, friend, be personally uncompromising about obedience to God, even if it brings you into conflict with your boss or any other ruler. It is dangerous, but it's a good witness. We've had all kinds of scriptures lately reminding us that sometimes being a good witness is dangerous. I don't personally dig that. I, I, if there was a danger-free, risk-free faith possibility, that's what I would choose. But that's not an option for Christians. That's not an option we have. Here we are seeing that it is dangerous, but it's a really good witness here to personally be uncompromising about obedience to God. So the question is, are you a child of God or are you a child of the kingdom of the world? That's a question you have to ask. Am I operating as a child of God who would do as Daniel did and stand firm, being steadfast, immovable, like I'm right here and I'm sure about where I am, who can endure and push through hard things the way that he did because of what he believed about his God? 
What Daniel believed about his God made him do amazing things, and it had an amazing witness, and it made him unshakable, and it made him steady. So are you a child of God, or are you a child of the kingdom of the world? Do you look at the kingdom of the world in hopes that it has something it can offer you that'll be better than what your God can offer you? Or do you look like they did at the king and say, you have nothing that's of value to me. I don't need to please you because what you have is not of value to me the way my eternal inheritance is. Look at 7.13. This is what we'll close with. 7.13. This is one of his visions. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You hear that language? Remember before it was all peoples, nations, and languages that should bow down to the golden idol? And here it's very intentionally all peoples, nations, and languages who will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In case you haven't caught on, this is the part about Jesus. Jesus is the one being referred to here. Jesus has been given the kingdom by God. He shall not pass away. He shall not be destroyed. And inevitably, those who are with Jesus are on the winning team. We know how the story ends. And peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. Think, t- tell me real quick, how did God go about establishing the throne of King Jesus? What'd you say? Through pain and suffering. How else did he go about establishing the throne of King Jesus? What'd you say? Yep. How else? He came to earth. He took on flesh. He identifies with us in our weaknesses. He was rejected. He was slandered. He was spit upon. They crucified him. He died, and then he conquered death. The thing that's been ringing in my head, I see Daniel as a servant of God, and I just, the verse is a servant greater than his master. God has the ability to do things that are beyond our ability, but that's not the only reason that we trust him. As we look at this and we see Jesus being given this, there's just this eternal reality that changes everything about the way we move day in and day out an eternal reality about our God that changes how we engage in conflict or how we respond to being wronged or maligned or threatened. Daniel survived by receiving the forgiveness of God alone and living a life of obedience to God alone. He received what God offered, and then he lived a life of obedience to God alone. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we entrusting ourselves fully to God? Or is there any part of your life where you're holding on to it saying, ah, I need to have some, some sight that I can walk by. I need to walk by what I can see, not by what I can't see. Because that's what these scriptures are doing. They're trying to get us to, to deal with that. We, we have to deal with it if there's any part of our lives that we're not entrusting fully to God. Daniel is a great example of entrusting himself fully to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example of entrusting themselves fully to God. There are others who would come later who would entrust themselves to God and get sawn in half. And God didn't break his promises. There are some who are delivered from pain because God keeps his promises. 
There are some who are delivered through pain, and they're changed through it, and their faith is made stronger. Even in the most dire circumstances, do we believe that he will either deliver us through it or deliver us from it, and that even if it means our death, he will immediately reward us with life eternally? If any of you in here face a circumstance someday where your obedience to God means death, I want you to know for certain that that death will bring immediate life, immediate eternal reward. That's how good our God is. That's why people hated Paul (laughs) and the disciples. It's like, we'll kill you. It's like, fine. You bring me closer to my God. You fulfill your own destiny, and you reward me eternally if you kill me. Okay, we can't kill him. What do we do? You see what I'm saying? That's not a boldness that's arrogant. It's a boldness that is founded in who God is, that he will immediately reward us with life eternally, even if it should mean our death. We have Christian brothers all over the globe who are facing such things daily. We have problems here, but there are some who are facing circumstances all over the globe um, where it literally is, you bow down or we'll kill you. And there are people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are dying to the sword, to the gun, to terror, to wickedness every day. And just because that's not what we see here, um, in our context, I don't want us to be oblivious to it because that's actually, in a weird way, this is a weird way to close it, God encourages us with that. He says, know that your brothers and sisters all over the world are experiencing the same kind of suffering. So whatever suffering you're having, I want you to know that your brothers and sisters of the world are experiencing the same kind. And in a lot of places, it's actually significantly worse. And they're dying by the sword. And they're having to make decisions that they got to entrust themselves to God. they got to entrust their children to God. they got to entrust their wives to God, their husbands to God. And it is not easy. But they can do that. There are people who are doing that. And God is being so good to them. God is with them. God's present with them. And so I actually thought it would be appropriate tonight for us to close um, just taking time praying for Christians globally that are suffering the kinds of things that that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered, and that the same God who was with them, that that he would be with with them um, in that suffering. So let's close in that prayer. Uh, Lord, um, I really like ending on a high note and talking about those who are suffering globally because of their faith in you. seems like a low note at first, um, but there's no doubt we're ending on a high note on that because we know what it means. Lord, we know that your scriptures say that if one comes here to this world as your child and suffers and dies for their faith, that even that death is precious in your eyes. Your word tells us that those who are suffering that around the world right now and that are dying because of their faith, that they are those of whom the world was not worthy. And your word also tells us that those who do that and suffer and die because of their faith are a gift to the world from you. Lord, we get so wrapped up in just the day-to-day consumerism and entertainment that we don't often think about those things. 
And tonight as we see our brothers and sisters, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others who were thrown into a furnace, who were thrown into a lion's den, who were threatened with death. Lord, should any of us face such a thing, I pray that we would stand firm. I pray that when we're threatened or maligned, when we're wronged, when things change in leadership, when things change, uh, when the climate changes and all of a sudden my beliefs are offensive to the majority of the culture, uh, Lord, help us to, to stand firm because we know that our God's different and that our God's unique in the same way that these guys did in the book of Daniel. Help us to have really entrusted ourselves to you. Help us to genuinely believe that you are worth being completely obedient to and help us never to compromise when it comes to our faith. Help us never to compromise when someone asks us to bow down. Help us never to compromise even if it's in the face of certain death. That we would know we are in the hands of God who is, who is always with us and who will never leave us and who will never forsake us. Lord, I confess, I don't, we don't always know why we need messages like this. But I'm certain that someone, somewhere, at some point in time, will need to stand firm in this reality. And I pray that they would be able to do that because they have been firm in how they've been obeying God. And that, like Daniel, when threatened, even if the law changes, he just went home and prayed. He kept doing what he was doing. And he entrusted himself to you. Lord, collectively, we entrust ourselves to you and ask that you would guide us and use us as you see fit. You are great. You are greatly to be praised. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You go get your kiddos.